welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. Bibles to Luke chapter 23. As you kind of find your place there, I'm going to draw attention to uh, uh, once again as we often do, we have received uh, the Florida Votes Values uh, Voter Guide for St. Lucie County. And a lot of us, as you know, realize for nationwide and, and, and elections that are, are nationwide, you find out about those, those candidates and what they believe and other things. But a lot of times locally it's difficult to really know the names and, and, and what they stand for. So this is a survey... Uh, done locally that just ask simple questions. Uh, one, for example, is uh, should we add sexual preference, sexual orientation uh, to a protected minority group? Another one is uh, should, should we participate or do they participate in, support, or attend gay and lesbian parades? Uh, do they support zoning laws that restrict church or religious meetings? Things that, are, the things that would be, you know, important to us. Uh, do they support chapel or chaplains in, in the local and county prisons and jails? So these are type of things, and they either respond yes or no, or they fail to respond, which pretty much shows, too, when they fail to respond. So there are some of these, if you are interested, sitting on the communion table over there. If you'd like to look through those, it may be a help uh, to getting to know your school board members, your sheriff candidates, and other things. We're looking at uh, Luke 23, where we left off last week at verse 26. And for a brief note, Luke does not at this point in his gospel document the horrific torture that Christ endured immediately before uh, the crucifixion. Uh, His violent scourging and death, they are foretold, by Christ in Luke 18, verse 33. So Luke does record the scourging, but we don't find it here. We don't find it here. It is in the Gospels of Matthew and in Mark, uh, of course, in Isaiah chapter 53. It is very clear there. Uh, Those other books document the scourging of Christ and having occurred immediately before he began to carry his cross to Golgotha. So as I read from verse 26, Luke's narrative is picking up now immediately after the violent scourging that Christ endured by the Romans. And we read, when they led Christ away, they seized a man, Simon of Cyrene, coming in from the country and and placed on him the cross to carry behind Jesus And following him was a large crowd of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if, these, uh, for if they do these things when the tree is green, 
What will happen when it is dry? Two others also who were criminals were being led away to be put to death with him. Um, it, it is very significant that all three synoptic gospels, that is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the gospels that, that kind of look through a similar lens, uh, make mention of a man named Simon. And Simon helped Jesus carry his cross. Uh, little is known about Simon. Uh, he, he was perhaps arriving in Jerusalem just in time to celebrate the Passover festival. Mark 15 tells us that he also had two sons, Rufus and Alexander. And all three gospel accounts include Simon was born in Cyrene, or Cyrene it may be pronounced, uh, which would be a modern equivalent to Tripoli in Libya, North Africa. Scripture here says that he came in from the country, literally the fields, or, or from the farm. Uh, uh, so it's doubtful that Simon had just traveled from Cyrene, all right? Isn't that he just arrived from Cyrene? He was probably a transplant, but originated from Cyrene. And this is included probably to distinguish him from the other various Simons that are found in Scripture. One other point would be, especially so that the reader of Luke would not uh, confuse this Simon with Simon Peter. You know, we can all imagine the, the mileage that probably Catholicism would get if they were able to infer that Simon Peter had helped Jesus carry his cross along the path to Calvary. Um, but uh, we know that is not so. And since there are many Simons named in Scripture, it was a very common name in that day, this reference to Cyrene is included to distinguish him from Simon Peter and other Simons, Simon the leper and, and numerous others that appeared in Scripture. All three synoptic Gospels also identify Simon as an in innocent passerby who got pressed involuntarily into service. Um, Luke actually says that the soldiers seized Simon, forced him to carry Jesus' cross. Uh, th this is substantial because every person condemned to die by crucifixion was forced to carry their own cross. They are forced to bear the weight of their cross all the way to the site of crucifixion. Jesus should have been no exception to this. Um, consequently, uh, there is no way to know exactly how far Jesus made it, how far he made it carrying his own cross, but at some point along the line, Simon had to take it from him. Uh, it's, uh, the, the Roman soldiers certainly were not going to carry it. But it is apparent that after the long night of interrogation, four trials that Jesus had to endure, then the violent scourging that his body endured, that brutal torture, his body was probably so physically weakened by this point that he could no longer carry it. He couldn't bear the weight himself. Uh, this is the reason all three Gospels reference Simon helping Jesus carry the cross to emphasize how Christ had been so brutally beaten, so brutally scourged and crushed for our iniquities that he could no longer even bury uh, the weight of a piece of lumber. I'm going to take this opportunity to show you a few photos. I think this will be of interest to you. Uh, the likely route uh, 
that Jesus walked. Uh, at the top there, you will see there is a Garden of Gethsemane over here, then the temple, then we have the praetorium here. That is where he would have stood before Pilate, most likely, for his final trial. So his path would have, would have started somewhere here, gone through the city, out the other wall on the uh, west side, and then to the place known as Golgotha, or the skull. Uh, in, in Latin, it's, it's Calvary. That's why we sing about Calvary. The Calvary in Latin is the skull. And um, this, this map shows us a route proceeded westerly. We don't know the exact route, but this is the probable route. You're also going to fe- uh, find references to um, the fact that Jesus was crucified outside the city. But if you visit Jerusalem today, you will discover that the city has expanded to engulf the entire route. Here's some other photos of that route, if we can pull them up the next slide. For some reason, it didn't click there. There we go. This is what it looks like in modern day Jerusalem. You're probably interested to see some of these. Uh, you've seen some of them in movies at one point or another. Uh, this would have been along the general route. It is the traditional route of the Via Della Rosa, um, which is, which is uh, the way of sorrows. That's what Via Della Rosa, you've heard Sandy Patty sing about it, and it's about the way of sorrows. And uh, this is entering in there towards the end of where he would have been crucified in, uh, in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which includes the altar of crucifixion. Now, I don't think it looked like that when, when the day that Jesus was crucified, all right? So it's, it's been dressed up in order to attract tourists and other things. We don't know if this is exactly the site. In fact, the, re- the way this site was chosen was through, uh, through a dream, apparently, that the mother of Constantine had. So they, they decorated this all up. Uh, the next slide would be the Holy Sepulchre, where it is said that uh, Christ was buried. So you can see there that there are a lot of extra stuff added in there. Apparently there are 14 landmarks along the way, these 14 stations that you can... Um, that you can stop and read about what happened at particular stations. The three different places where Jesus had fallen and uh, one place where a woman wiped his brow with their scarf. These things, of course, not seen in Scripture, but they are marked along the way. They draw a lot of attention. Another thing that draws a lot of attention along the way are markets. Markets where you can buy your silverwares and, and commemorate that you had traveled to this place. Interesting. From people who've traveled there, I find it's very interesting. Um, yeah. The, uh, there's a lot there. But um, Scripture records only three things on this path. They, they are all in our passage today. Simon assumes Jesus' cross from him. There are the wailing women who Jesus rebukes. And, and then there are two criminals that join him on this same journey. That, that's really all we know for sure from Scripture. The entire route to Calvary was only about a half mile long. Only a half mile long. It's all as far as it was. That was a short jaunt in those days, folks. For people who walked 
virtually everywhere. They even walked between cities. They would carry their personal belongings and other supplies from city to city. Uh, That would have been a very short distance for people who were used to walking. So Jesus had to have been so severely wounded, so severely wounded uh, that he could not carry that piece of lumber a relatively short distance. Uh, Again, the presence of Simon is critical to underscore Jesus' fragile condition at this point. But the passage is not about Simon. Of course, it is about Jesus Christ and the severity of judgment that will follow uh, for everyone who will reject him as their king. All right? In, In review, the immediate context that we have studied documents four separate trials that Christ went through, three years of ministry that were a testimony to everything he had done, and um, Jesus was found as innocent multiple times. He, he was their Messiah. All the evidence that came out of these trials was that he is truly the Christ. It is even pronounced by Pontius Pilate that this is your king. Yet the people said, away with him, crucify him, crucify him. Again and again, we see in verse 21, they yell, crucify him. And this is at least partially because now they can perceive that this Christ standing before Rome, injured and beaten, they can perceive he was in no position to provide for them what they really wanted. What what the people really wanted was liberation from Rome and a, a national prosperity that, that would mirror that of King Solomon. That's what the people really wanted was prosperity and liberation for Rome. Um, so they conclude, you know, if you don't give us what we want, away with you. Away with you. We will not accept a king who does not serve our every earnest desire. It's a bad situation. Folks, it, it, it's alarming today. It's very, very alarming that still today people buy into a gospel, quote-unquote gospel, that suggests that once you accept Jesus, he promises that you will prosper and all of your life's troubles will go away. Folks, folks that does not ring true in other parts of the world where there's persecution. That gospel, that dog won't hunt, all right? Um, that is a false gospel that offers supposedly emotional fulfillment, guaranteed health, uh, even the power to speak your own words into existence. That's called the Word of Faith movement. Many proponents on TV saying that what you speak is what you can create in reality. So speak positively, right? hear that again and again. Some even imply faith in Jesus will provide you with better parking spots at the mall. It's gotten that ridiculous. The prosperity gospel is that ridiculous. This, they say, is because Christ the King died to serve you, to make you wealthy, to make your problems go away. That is why He came and that is why He died, to make you healthy, wealthy, and prosperous. Folks, The only thing that Jesus has repeatedly promised in this Gospel of Luke for those who follow Him is that if you do, you will suffer for the Gospel and you will bear your own cross. 
You're going to bear the weight of your own cross. The prosperity gospel is a false bill of goods. When it is preached, usually one of two things happens, or both things happen. And number one, most often, like the folks in our story here, people are going to become alienated when Jesus doesn't come through with what they want, what they had hoped for, when he doesn't deliver. So eventually they say, away with him. We aren't going to serve a a king that will not give us our every wanton pleasure. Uh, This group grows normally cold towards Christ. They leave the prosperity church alienated. They conclude Christianity is a hoax that is manipulated to make pastors wealthy and buy them jets. That's one side of the story. People leave alienated and cold to the true gospel. Ah, the second common experience among the prosperity churches, it's even more tragic. It's even more tragic. The prosperity gospel captivates. It enchants people. Uh, persons who experience a margin of success in society. They really like this. They really like this. Um, they may be a doctor, a successful business person. They might be a financial investor of some kind, whoever it may be. There is always a segment in every society, every culture, every society, every country, who achieves some measure of prosperity and prominence. And these are the ones who return home from church each Sunday. And they say, you know what? This Jesus thing really works for me really works for me. I've never had greater success. My portfolio of stocks is, is at an all-time high. Uh, my pastor tells me all I've got to do to maintain the success is has a, have a positive attitude, work hard, and keep giving your 10% to the church. It's a prosperity gospel. Um, keep giving to Jesus so that you can get all selfishly uh, motivated. And I've had... Uh, numerous engagement with with some of these folks and i know some of you have as well that's why i'm addressing it a little more here um some have had family members sucked into this it's painful and one man i knew personally he displayed little to no fruit held a very negative attitude towards scripture or any kind of uh, passage that might uh talk about judgment and god's judgment like the one we're in today uh he was characterized by pride yet he told me he was positive Jesus loved him. He knew that Jesus loved him, that, and, and the evidence that he supplied was how his stock portfolio continued to perform uh, record profits. That was the evidence. He knew God loved him. Uh, some of these folks become the most fervent advocates of, of, the, of the prosperity gospel, the false gospel. They become evangelists for that movement, to draw others in to what they have uh, been sucked into, the prosperity church, because for them, they say, Jesus really works. Jesus really works. And I advise this fellow, you know, Scripture assures us financial prosperity is never an indicator of salvation. I reminded him, some of the most extremely wealthy people in the world, you can look at Bill Gates, Oprah Winfrey, uh, others, who, who have no relationship with Christ at all. No fruit or words to propose that they do, uh, but they prosper because they have a, a good work ethic or they have a great business model. Um, raw talent. Some of these people have a lot of raw talent and they prosper. Uh, but health and financial prosperity are never an indicator of spirituality. 
So that gentleman, he packed up his big wallet and he left. Went to another place. That's what often happens. Here's what becomes so deceptive for us, and we need to remember this. It should be encouragement to us. And I want to say beforehand, a good church isn't measured by size and attendance. There's some wonderful churches out there that are very large. I I came out of one. Uh, There are wonderful churches that are very small. There are poor churches that are large. This isn't a diatribe against large churches at all. I I don't hold that position. But here's what becomes so deceptive with churches who preach this false gospel. Those who are poorer amongst us, and they buy the pastor's scheme to, to keep giving 10%, even before they pay their electric bill, their power gets cut off, all right? And, and they quickly become disenfranchised and exit that church through the back door to never return. They go out the back door. They're cold to the gospel. Meanwhile, the normally, small, normally smaller group, those who achieve a measure of prosperity and are convinced it really works, doctors, lawyers, investors, those who have a successful uh, model of some kind, they stick around. They buy into it big time. They evangelize other successful people to come in and network as the poor people continue to leave. And, and, and the wealthy become convinced Jesus is really working for them. They increasingly congregate in one place, and that, pros, that, that prosperity church prospers. It grows big. Most drive fine cars. They're all well-dressed. The building program expands. They flourish. They franchise. And it looks really big. looks really impressive. But here's the troubling uh, pattern. They don't train up young pastors, young preachers, to enter challenging ministry environments or plant healthy churches uh, confronting, as Jesus did, the sins of excess. The sins of merchandise. Um, No, the prosperity church markets and expands their brand. It's all about their brand name. Uh, They feature a suave guy wearing skinny jeans. And one primary guy that hardly anyone has ever met is piped into multiple campuses by satellite. And nobody has ever had a talk to him or counseled by him on anything. Uh, When he wants Sunday off, his wife preaches. This is what looks like success today in America. And it's not. We have to beware of it. Um, Here's the troubling pattern both groups have in common. The poor who leave uh, uh, alienated and the wealthy who remain indoctrinated. Neither of those two factions that, that... chased the prosperity church were ever interested in following a bloodied and humiliated and condemned Christ to a road to Calvary. None of them were in for that. None of them would buy into that gospel. And from the beginning in their hearts, the only thing that they were interested in is what could this Jesus do for me in this lifetime? In Christ 20, uh, Luke 23, when Christ fails to liberate the people and provide them the prosperity that they want, they reject Him. They won't have that kind of Christ. They don't want that Messiah. And their rejection of the true Christ, the one seen in the pages of Scripture, 
Folks, it's going to have enormous consequences for a nation. Enormous consequences. Uh, uh, you're probably saying, boy, this, this is not the first time that we have heard this in Luke. You are so right. You are so right. Um, just a couple chapters earlier in Luke 21, verse 21, Jesus had promised that there are coming the days of God's vengeance. He said, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, and those who are in the midst of the city must leave, and those who are in the country must not enter the city, because these are the days of vengeance, so that all things which are written will be fulfilled. Woe to those, this will look familiar to our passage today, Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people, and they will fall by the edge of the sword, and they will be led captive into all the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Um, This forced dispersal of Israel amongst the nations... The initiation of the times of the Gentiles, of Gentile dominance over Israel, uh, are unmistakable references to the destruction that was, that was endured in 70 A.D. And here in Luke 23, Jesus is warning them yet again with his last footsteps to the cross. His last footsteps. He is warning them once again. Uh, why say it again? Why bring this all up again? It's for radical emphasis. Radical emphasis, he says. Uh, you don't. Here he is bloodied on the Via Dolorosa. Beaten beyond recognition, according to Isaiah. You don't really think you folks can do this to the Son of God. And get away with it, do you? Do you really think you are going to escape judgment for what you have done to the Christ. This is a prominent theme in this gospel that demands repeated redundancy, restatement with radical redundancy. And it is the assurance, assured destruction of everyone who rejects Jesus as king. It's coming. And folks, we are called out. We must be the ones who join Jesus and bear our own cross. We got to get in line behind him. I, I wouldn't read too much into it, but simply, uh, Simon, he, he does supply a good image of that. That he is behind now, following Jesus, bearing a cross. It is a picture of what we have to do, not knowing anything more about Simon. But this crowd is following him. Jesus' repeated command. Take up your cross and follow me. And there, there is now gathering behind him a large crowd following him to Golgotha. I'd ask, do you, do you find yourself there? Do you find yourself amongst the crowd following him? Following a bloodied Christ. A shameful Christ as the world sees him. One that is in agony. Uh, do you see yourselves as the women Mourning and lamenting Him. You know, mourning there means to, to beat your chest with agony over what you see. Um, 
They are expressing great sympathy for Jesus. Uh, we're not told who, who exactly is in this crowd. Um, some, like myself, think it included women who were disciples, true disciples of Jesus. Others suggest these may have been uh, hired whalers. You know, there, there are, uh, there apparently were and were, not just apparently, there were, there's historical facts saying that it was common in that day to hire uh, whalers, women who would wail at funerals, uh, to show lament during funerals. I, I'm not sure I buy into that explanation, though, personally. Uh, Jesus isn't, isn't dead yet, and this isn't a funeral procession. I personally get the conviction that the people following were the most legitimate devotees to Jesus Christ. They were behind him, following him all the way. You probably had Simon the leper. Probably blind Bartimaeus is in there somewhere, having come in from Jericho uh, for the feast. Lazarus surely raised from the dead. Lazarus is probably in the crowd. You've got Mary, and there's Martha, and then there's Magdalene. You got Joanna and Salome, who we talked about just a few weeks ago, uh, some of whose names are recorded as present at Golgotha when Christ dies. Uh, so this group probably includes a large number of very devoted followers. Think about that. There's some Steves in there. there there's a Faye in there. There's a Russell in that crowd following Christ. All the way to the cross. All the way. So I conclude that Jesus' pronouncement here as He turns to this crowd isn't directed at just these women in the crowd. It's it's more general than that. He isn't rebuking uh, these disciples as much as He is Jerusalem itself. It's pointed at the women lamenting because they're crying. In verse 28, Jesus simply turns and addresses the daughters of Jerusalem. In general, daughters of Jerusalem. It's a very broad declaration. He says, stop weeping for me. Stop weeping for me. Weep for yourselves. Weep for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they all say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. You know, Jesus commands them to stop weeping. Don't weep for me uh, because their sorrow for Him, it's being misdirected. They're expressing sorrow, but it's misdirected. And there are at least a couple reasons. Number one, in less than a couple hours, Jesus is going to have died. He's very close now. His, his anguish will pass. Alright? Um, his, his suffering, as extreme as it is, it has an expiration. It's going to end soon. After which He will be resurrected and He will be glorified as the first fruits of many brethren. Um... Do you, ever, do you ever think of that? When, when, when Christians have funerals, uh, other people think that we're odd, but when, when we go to a funeral, funeral of a Christian, we, we, don't, we don't mourn as the rest who have no hope. 
We don't, we don't grieve like them. Uh, for if we believe Jesus died, for Thessalonians 4.13, even so God will bring with him those brethren uh, when, he, when he returns. So for Christians, as, as we take our last breath, as we die, um, our suffering is finished. It's, it's done. Um, we pass into heavenly bliss. And, and for Christ, his, hum, his humiliation and his pain that he is now experiencing is going to be all over soon enough. That's going to expire. Just a matter of time. I, I, don't, I don't state this to make light of the suffering, but to explain how his sacrifice on the cross, through that, Jesus has put an end to all suffering for those who believe. It comes at the re- resurrection, not only of Christ, but those who follow him. So when we're grieving the loss of loved ones at their funeral, those who are in Christ, it's not a grief that doesn't have any hope. It's actually usually, and I know it was with my mom and my grandma and my dad, there's a relief that the suffering now through this life has finally ended. It's finally over. There's a second reason Jesus tells his followers, do not weep for me. And this is because Christ does not need nor want pity. He doesn't want our pity. Sadly, even today there exists a whole lot of emotional empathy. A whole lot of emotion involved, exhausted toward Jesus that would be better used if it were directed elsewhere. Our sympathies, our empathies. Philip Ryken, theologian, correctly writes this, Many paintings of the crucifixion, many statues and icons of the cross, are designed to evoke feelings of pity for Jesus. Similarly, the traditional seven stations of the cross are used to simulate, uh, stimulate emotional participation in the sufferings of Christ. This was the theological underpinning of Mel Gibson's blockbuster film, The Passion of the Christ. He writes that many Christians believe that Good Friday is a day when they should feel sad that Jesus died and therefore try to get themselves into the right emotional state to grieve his crucifixion. But Jesus does not need our sympathy, says Riken. He did not need them when he was about to die. He certainly does not need them now that his sufferings are over. If we weep over the cross, therefore, it should be with sorrow for our sin and gratitude for salvation, but never with sadness for Jesus. Jesus, in this passage, is telling them, redirect your passions. Redirect your passions away from me. I'll be fine, he says. F.W. Krumacher a 18th century theologian, also says this. He was considered by some as the best preacher in Europe back in the 18th century. He says, Tears of sentimentality and pity are nowhere so much out of place as on Calvary. While resigning ourselves to such emotions, we mistake the Lord Jesus, nay, even degrade Him. 
as our regards for ourselves miss the way of salvation marked out for us by God, hence the Savior exclaims, Once for all, weep not for me. Weep not for me. You know, Jesus did not offer himself to suffer and die for our sins to gain pity. He, he offered himself as a substitute to conquer sin. That's why he, and in that he is victorious at Calvary. And in doing so, he was showing that he was more concerned about others than he was about preserving himself. Uh, so he says, Do not weep for me. His rebuke is designed to redirect their passions. Redirect your passions toward what I wept for, says Jesus. Well, what did he wept for? Well, he wept for those who are going to be destroyed once God's judgment arrives. In Luke 19, verse 41, just, just days earlier when he said this, he, actually it was on the day he was riding the donkey into Jerusalem. He said in this day, when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, if you had known in this day, even you, the things that make for peace, But now they have been hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize your day of visitation. Jesus says, don't weep for me. Weep for your own generation." Weep for them. Weep for the effect this rejection is going to have on your own children. Weep for them. Weep for those who've denied the Son and who's suffering in this life and death. Those who their suffering will never have an expiration. Verse 29, For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. You know, when, when Jerusalem was sacked in 70 AD, it was a horrific scene. It, it, was, it was a siege by the, the Roman general Titus. He later became emperor. Uh, and the suffering becomes so intense at that time that the, the agony and the horror that was recorded may, uh, was a testimony to the women who wished they'd never even had children. Folks, this is turning Jewish culture upside down. Because one of the worst things that a woman could endure in, in Jewish culture was to be barren. And now it's inverted. The judgment of God is so great when Rome comes and crushes that city that the women are wishing, we wish we never had been blessed with these children. We wish we didn't have to see what these children are going through. Um, Historians record the extremity of the misery and the starvation experienced in Jerusalem. Uh, I won't repeat. It is so horrific. The mother's behavior was like no other judgment that man has seen. It was incredible. It was was horrifying. And their cry for the mountains to fall on them. 
for the hills to cover them was a longing that they might die and be buried so that the agony might cease. But theirs is an agony, folks, that never ceases. An agony that never ceases. Jesus repeats this prophecy from Hosea that we read together earlier and described how uh, Assyria, uh, what was going to happen when Assyria sacked the northern kingdom. Centuries earlier, Hosea was a picture of God's judgment upon that believing, uh, gen- unbelieving generation. That was a judgment from long past by Hosea. Uh, it's also a picture that Christ gives of a judgment in a distant future that might not be so distant anymore. Revelation 6, verse 16 describes those who will face God's judgment in that day. And they will cry out to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Three times we get this quotation. Hosea... Jesus as he's on the road to Calvary and revelation in the future. So this judgment Jesus speaks of, it's past, it is present, it is future to all those who reject Jesus Christ uh, as their king. Those who reject God's provision of salvation in the day of Hosea. It, It is a type It's a type of divine judgment that's restated again and again. It bridges every generation from Adam to today. Every generation has ever lived and died absent of the grace of God. And those people, they cry. They long for the mountains that they would cover them up, that they would hide them from the presence of God, even kill them. We want to be buried. We want to die is what they are saying. Their torment is so great, but they can't even die. You know, this, this world kind of stinks sometimes. Life gets hard. There are physical problems, distresses, agonies, financial issues that people deal with. Seems agonizing to us. In fact, sometimes we'll even talk a little bit in jest that mothers will say, I don't even know if I want my children to have to come up in this generation we are in, right? But what we face is nothing compared to what those who have rejected Christ as king. Philip Ryken once again writes, quote, In each case, in Hosea, in Luke, and in Revelation, people coming under the judgment have a death wish for their own destruction. In absolute desperation, they want the mountains to cover them up, hoping to escape the wrath of God. They dream of annihilation, begging that the rocks will fall from the sky and crush them into oblivion. Nevertheless, their pleas are all in vain, for there is no doctrine of annihilation in Scripture. We will never cease to exist. No one will ever cease to exist. This is the reason Jesus says, don't weep for me. Don't weep for me. Weep instead for them. Weep for them. If they are unwilling to accept the provision of God's Son while He is here, while He walked the earth, while the tree is green, 
and they won't accept his provision then? What will occur in a nation after he's gone? It's going to become even drier. It's going to be spiritually dry. And by the time 70 AD comes around, it, it is combustible. It is so dry, it is combustible. Folks, today the, the world, it, it is a, it, it's a spiritual desert. America is a spiritual desert. We were having a discussion Wednesday night about the percentage of Americans that are likely actually regenerated Christians. All I can say is we don't know for sure, but it's small. It is small. Narrow is the way that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Uh, The world's a spiritual desert. It is filled with dry kindling, ready to ignite the day Christ returns. Uh, Folks, decades and decades, actually centuries now, of dried branches, dried branches have fallen off over the years. They cover the ground. Revivals throughout history, there are some. You have... um, the Reformation was a type of revival. Uh, Jonathan Edwards and the Great Awakening was a type of revival. And uh, uh, th- those were kind of almost like controlled burns. All right? though, na- though the nations had, go- had grown dry, they were like controlled burns where people were brought into the kingdom of God. It, controlled burns like that are beneficial. They are. Controlled burns are always beneficial. We, th- we look at the wildfires out in California... And people debate all that stuff there. Uh, they are a direct result of the government forbidding the forestry service to prescribe controlled burns. To burn a little bit as it builds up so it doesn't just light off altogether. Um, the state doesn't want to release any CO2 into the atmosphere, right? So they don't allow controlled burns. Uh, so when an uncontrolled fire erupts over dry kindling, what happens? Complete devastation. Complete devastation. Um, That devastation that we see there, it is a failure of people to act and respond prudently to dry branches. A failure of people to respond appropriately. Boy, Boy, that is an illustration for something else. The failure of people to act. Spiritually, there has not been a, a, a controlled burn in America for a long while. Not a good burn. Folks, we need to pray that God, the Holy Spirit, for our benefit, for, through His mercy and through His grace, will ignite a controlled burn in this country. We, we desperately need the Holy Spirit to light up a fire amongst His churches. We are in desperate times. There's a lot of dry kindling out there. In order to avert just complete devastation, we need to act. We can't just sit aside and not act and wonder why the forest isn't being managed well. And and you know, weep for the people that you know. Weep for the people you go to school with, for the ones you you work with. For Christ says, everybody that you know here, when the judgment comes, it's going to be an uncontrolled burn. It's going to be a devastation like you've never seen before when Christ returns. 
your neighbors, your sons, your co-workers, your clients, everyone is going to face the judgment of God's fire for rejecting Christ as king. And, and that's a judgment that has an everlasting torment. One where the worm does not die and the fire is never quenched. Never quenched. Um, you want to be moved with sympathy? You want to feel emotions for someone. Jesus is just fine. He's fine. Don't wait for him. He's good. He's at the right hand of God. Everything's cool there. Instead, tell your neighbors, tell your friends about the forgiveness that is available in Jesus Christ. That when that fire comes, they ain't dry tinder. Be willing to suffer a little rejection. Be willing to bear your own cross a little bit before His kingdom comes. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him will never perish. But God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world would be saved through Him. He who believes in Him is not judged But he who does not believe is judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Folks, go out there and light a controlled fire. Go out there and watch it burn. Watch the Spirit burn. And if you have not done so already, we urge you to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior.